What did the Old Testament saints see? That's a question we've asked before around here. But I want to frame today's sermon around that inquiry. What did the Old Testament saints see? And perhaps a helpful way of, of getting at that would be to ask this question. What would you have seen? Put yourself back in Old Testament times, maybe back in Hannah's time. You've never heard the name Jesus. You don't know who the Apostle Paul is. You've never heard of terms like justification, sanctification, the Trinity, the Incarnation, hypostatic union. There is no New Testament that's been written. You've never cracked it open before. And in fact, you don't even have much of the Old Testament scriptures. Very unlikely that even the portions that had been written, you would have a personal copy of in your home. You have none of that. All you have is a promise that's been passed down that references a coming seed that's going to kill a snake. And then occasionally, you show up and bring an animal to a tent made of tanned ramskin. That's what you have to work with. Now, if that's all that you had, how all-encompassing and worldview-dominating would that notion be? Would your everyday life be oriented around that promise of a seed who would kill a snake? Would it form the substance of your spiritual life? How much of the substance of its fulfillment could you articulate? How much would you have seen? Now consider that as we turn again to the woman, Hannah. You recall that in the first sermon we were introduced to Hannah. We were introduced to the fact that she had two adversaries. She was barren. And she was dealing with the woman, Penina, who would rub that barrenness in her face. And she waited patiently upon the Lord, praying to him over and over and going up year by year to God's tabernacle to worship him. And God remembered her and gave her a son. And then she faithfully stewarded that son by dedicating him to the Lord. And the prayer that she offers this morning was given upon the occasion of Samuel's dedication at the tabernacle. And my assertion to you is this, that Hannah's prayer is her declaration in, the, in her faith in the sufferings and subsequent glories of God's Christ. That's what she's praying about here in this prayer. I want to show that to you. That she uses God's work in her life, the things that God had done, as a means to look beyond herself to God's larger redemptive plan for his people. Now, we're going to go through this prayer in a nonlinear fashion, meaning I'm not going to go, you know, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4 like we did last time. I'm going to introduce a little bit of a topical arrangement because I think that's the most effective way to get at the substance of what she is saying here. So we're going to examine first. We're going to, we're going to mine through and see if we can find the substance of her prayer. And then at the end, we'll see its fulfillment as time goes on. So then, first, let's talk about the substance of her prayer. In order to understand Hannah's prayer, I think it would be very helpful to understand that this discourse that she's offering here is part of a larger subgenre within the scriptures. There's a whole subgenre of different uh, sayings, prayers, discourses, etc. that I have, I couldn't find anybody who came up with a name for them, but everybody recognizes it's a thing. So I came up with a name as best I could. I'm calling them horizontally expansive discourses. Now, what is that? Horizontal, not as in horizontal versus vertical, but think horizon. It's where the author uses something in their everyday life and experience as a launching point to then go on to a discourse about something much bigger and much broader. They're trying to make a much larger point, but they start with something very simple in their own experience. 
And you can always tell when you're in the middle of one of these discourses in the scripture because you're reading through it and you're going, okay, I know the thing that he's supposed to be praying about, but the language here sounds way too big for this. It seems like they're going way beyond just the thing that prompted the prayer in the first place. Some biblical examples of this would be the song of Deborah and Barak, Ezekiel 28, uh, Jonah's discourse in the belly of the whale, Psalm 18, and many of the minor prophets are all cast within this subgenre of, of horizontally expanding the horizons of their view beyond themselves. And each of these discourses has a centralizing concept that, that sort of provides the lens through which they express all of their ideas. For example, in Ezekiel 28, a well-known passage that we've kind of hashed back and forth at the tables here a few times, Ezekiel starts off by, by saying, I'm talking about the king of Tyre. But as you read through it, you eventually come to the realization, we're not really talking about the king of Tyre anymore, are we? We're talking all of a sudden about the Garden of Eden and precious stones and priests and cherubim, things that go way beyond some, some ancient Near Eastern potentate who was alive in Ezekiel's day. And he casts his vision in the, in the light of a priest king. Now, Hannah's prayer is similar to this. So as we go through it, we should expect to see her talking about something much bigger than just Samuel's birth. And Hannah centers her prayer around the metaphorical concept of a horn, specifically the exaltation of a horn. And to see that, all you have to see is that she uses that concept to bookend the prayer. She introduces it at the very beginning, and it's the very last thing that she ends with. Notice in verse 1, as I mentioned when we read it, she says, My horn is exalted in the Lord. That's the first thing that she says. And then at the very end, in verse 10, she says, God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's at the very beginning and the very end. And everything in the middle is pretty much just an unpacking and an expansion of the concept of the exaltation of a horn. So if we are to understand how Hannah's prayer gets us to Christ we have to understand the biblical significance of a horn. So we'll turn to that right now. In the scriptures, the Hebrew word for horn is keron. No, not Quran. Keron. And horn is used as a metaphor for a number of different things all throughout the Old Testament. So I want to take you through and just introduce you to the four things that a horn is most commonly used to describe metaphorically. The first of them is power and strength. In Amos chapter 6 and verse 13, Amos is quoting wicked men within Israel who are boasting. And they say, have we not by our own strength gotten horns for ourselves? What are they saying? That by our own strength, we have acquired more strength for ourselves. You think of Daniel's uh, vision he has in chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. He sees a goat which has a conspicuous horn on his head. And he uses this horn to jab into and destroy a ram. It's a display of his power and his strength over this other animal. The second thing that a horn is descriptive of besides power and strength is dominion. In Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 25, Zechariah has the vision of the four horns. And he asks the angel, what, what are these four horns that you're showing me? Because they're not literal horns. And the angel says to him, they are those nations that have conquered Judah and will conquer all of the world. They are described as having dominion because they go out and they conquer and they take possession of other nations. They expand their reach and their authority and their dominion out through all of the earth. And they are represented as horns. The third thing that a horn is representative of is honor. It's particularly honor in the eyes of men. 
In Job chapter 16 and verse 15, after he has uh, gone through all of those tragic uh, occurrences that befall him, he's lamenting. And it says that he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He has taken off his normal, acceptable social garments, and he has brought himself low in the eyes of men. He's put on something that you wouldn't walk around town and be seen as dressed in, sackcloth. And he describes his doing this. He says, my horn is laid low in the dirt. He has brought himself low in the eyes of men in putting on the sackcloth and ashes and entering into a state of mourning. His honor has been brought down. So a horn is representative of power and strength, dominion, honor, and finally, glory. In, uh, in Exodus, I mentioned this a couple of Saturdays ago at our men's group. In Exodus chapter 33, you know the story that God tells Moses he's going to put him in the cleft of a rock and his glory will pass by him. And this occurs, and then when Moses comes down off of the mountain, having had God's glory imprinted upon his face, chapter 34 tells us that his face shone with the glory of God. Now what's interesting is that the verb shown there in Hebrew is the word keran. It literally says, his face horned the glory of God. It's as if God's glory was protruding forth of him in the form of horns. So then, a horn represents power, strength, dominion, honor, and glory. Now, another helpful question for us to ask in understanding the full biblical significance of a horn is this. Who in the scripture is described as having a horn? Now, given what I just said a horn represents, you might naturally expect that the most likely candidate for being described as having a horn are kings and kingdoms. Kingdoms and kings have dominion, power, strength, honor, and glory. And while there are many texts throughout the scriptures that do exactly that, that attribute the possession of a horn to a king, we find a number of other texts in scripture that seem to, to go beyond this. They are sort of universalizing texts that actually predicate the possession of a horn not just of kings and kingdoms, but of every man and woman. Psalm 75 is a good example of this, and we'll turn to this text several times. You don't have to do it right now. In verse 10, as God's universal judgment of the world is in view, God says this, All of the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. Now, who there has horns? Two groups, the righteous and the wicked. Now, those two categories, righteous and wicked, are all-encompassing. You're either in one or you're in the other. It's like the New Testament Jew-Gentile distinction. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. You're either righteous or you are wicked. And so if the possession of a horn can be predicated of the righteous and the wicked, then that does not allow us to limit the possession of a horn to merely kingship. Because many of the righteous and the wicked are not powerful. They're not mighty. They're not kings. And Hannah herself even says that she has a horn. And as we saw last time, she's not honorable, she's not mighty, she's not powerful, she's hardly known to the world at this time. So then, to find what a horn is ultimately representative of, and here's the key, we need a concept that unites strength, power, honor, dominion, and glory, and that is applicable to all men and women at all places and all times. And that concept is the Imago Dei. Now, if that sounds strange to you, then let's take a look, and you can flip here to Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, it's a well-known psalm. We should all know it. 
David is describing mankind, particularly mankind, as he has been created by God. And I want you to listen to, think about the things that we just said a horn is representative of, all those key words, and listen to the words that David uses to describe man as he's made in the image of God. I'm just going to read verses 2 and then 5 and 6. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, new created beings, you have established strength. Then in verse 5, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with, what? Glory and honor and given him dominion over the work of your hands. Everything that we saw a horn is representative of in the scripture is right here attributed to man as created. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that every single time in the scripture you encounter the word horn, you can translate it image of God, and the text is going to make complete sense. That's not the point. But what I am saying is that every time a horn is used of a, of a human creature, metaphorically in the scripture, it can be predicated of that man, whether it's talking about strength and power, honor and dominion and glory. It can be rightly said to be a characteristic of that man because that person is made in the image of God. Now, if that is the case, if a horn's ultimate referent in Scripture is to the essence or to the fact that man is created in God's image, then one's horn, in its fullest sense, is one's God-endowed essence, being, spirit, soul, and makeup. It is that aspect of man that allows him to imitate and reflect traits of his creator. And therefore, all men can be said to have horns. Now, I hope that the case will build cumulatively here as we go. I, I, there's more that we could say to try and prove that. But take my word for it if you're not already satisfied, and hopefully it will become clear as we go. Now, we've briefly sketched the significance of what a horn is. But as I said, Hannah's prayer is centered not just around a horn, but the exaltation of a horn. So then what does it mean to exalt a horn? To exalt something implies that first it was in a position of lowliness, at least relatively speaking. If it's going to be exalted, it has to have first been in a lower position. So is there anything in Hannah's prayer that indicates to us that someone or something is in a lowly position? The answer is yes. To see this, I want you to notice the type of people that she mentions in verses 1b and 3a back in her prayer. Right after having said that my horn is exalted in the Lord... She then says, my mouth derides my enemies. Now, who are the enemies of Hannah? Well, if all this said was my mouth derides my enemy, singular, we might be tempted to say, well, this is just penina. But she makes it plural. Because remember, her vision is expanding beyond herself. My mouth derides my enemies. Now, who would be the enemies of righteous Hannah? Well, they would be the wicked. And then in verse 3 at the end, she says, after warning the wicked not to speak very arrogantly, I'm sorry, uh, at the beginning of verse 3, she warns the wicked very specifically, talk no more so very proudly and let not arrogance come forth from your mouth. Now, who is she talking about there? She's talking about people who speak proudly in heart. And who in the scripture is described as speaking proudly more than the wicked? It's what they do. So implicit in Hannah's prayer is a recognition that there are two types of people. There are the righteous and there are the wicked. And we've seen already that both of those types of people have horns. But what is it that leads to one of these groups being in a lowly position and therefore needing to have their horn exalted? Well, the answer is this. And Hannah knew this quite well from her experiences with Penina. 
It's that the righteous and the wicked, though they both live and inhabit this world, do not do so on equal footing when it comes to this world system. Now, why is that? Because the default nature of man is inherently wickedness. The wicked here below dominate everything. Everything here is designed for, programmed around, purposed to exalt, and glories in wickedness. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. God saw that the intentions of man's heart was only evil continually. Therefore, he destroyed them in the flood. Psalm 12 and verse 8. The wicked strut about when that which is vile is exalted amongst the sons of men. You know, Romans 3, Paul takes that litany of Old Testament passages and proves over and over again, men are wicked, men are evil. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their feet are quick to shed innocent blood. It's what man is. So when you have a race of men who are inherently sinful to their core, then as they begin to engage with one another and build cultures and value systems, the resulting order that is produced must be inherently sinful leaving aside issues of common mercy for just a moment. And that's exactly what we heard last or two weeks ago. They create Babylon, that world system that is sinful to its core. And it's very interesting that all of man's obsession with sin is actually described by God as they're lifting up their horns against him. Psalm 75, again, verses 4 through 5. Listen what God says. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn on high. Do not lift up your horn and speak with a haughty neck. Now, why would God describe it in this way? Why would God describe the rebellion of man as them lifting up their horns against them? Because man has taken his entire essence and being and will, all of who he is, and put it into the service of rebellion against God. All of their God-given faculties for strength and for power and glory and honor and dominion have been poured out, as the Apostle Paul tells us, into new and ever more creative ways of inventing evil. And because their essence is involved, their whole being, God can describe it as they're lifting their horn against him. So then, what happens as a result of the, of the wicked doing this over and over, of their lifting their horns, of their building this world system? Well, as man continues to create the great Babylon, then as God intervenes in that system, and as he takes one of those wicked rebels and he creates a new creature, he changes their essence, and he makes them a lover of God and a hater of wickedness, then as that person now enters into the world system and interacts with the city of Babel, the citizens of that kingdom look and they, they recognize that there's something different and they all of a sudden start to say, that's not going to work here. That's not going to fly. And as a result, the righteous are persecuted, demeaned, uh, demoralized, and outcast. They are pushed to the margins of society. Not some communist intersectionality coalition. They're not the ones pushed to the margins of society. It's the righteous. The wicked evaluate the righteous according to their own standards as well. A righteous people are labeled as weak and feeble and worthless and unsuccessful and evil because they will not devote all of themselves to chasing the idols that Babylon offers. They're not praised. They're not lauded. They're not loved by the world. The wicked dominate here because this is their playground. So then, 
In the world system, it's as if the wicked are strutting about on all sides, lifting their horns, exalting themselves against the knowledge of God, while the righteous are off to the side, having their horns laid low in the dirt. They're not praised. They're not esteemed. And so in light of that situation, given that that's what the world is in sin, the exaltation of the horn of the righteous is nothing more than the reversal of this current world system. As the righteous have been laid low, their exaltation is the reversal of that. Now I'm going to get more specific because that's very general. But to show that our understanding of exaltation of the horn as a reversal of the state of affairs, and to show that our understanding of that is in fact Hannah's understanding, let's look at how she expresses her hope of exaltation. After stating her hope that her horn would be exalted, and after having warned the wicked in verse 3 that they had better not boast against God, she describes in verses 4 through 8, and that's what we're going to focus in on here, she describes in verses 4 through 8 a series of dramatic reversals. Now let's look at a couple of them just to get the idea. The first reversal is described in terms of strength. In verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Now here you have a, a, a mighty warrior, a man praised by the world, a man looked at as, as strong and prosperous and successful, who is able to impose his own will and to dominate others. You think of Nimrod. He began to be a, a mighty hunter before the Lord, and then he was made king over the land of, of Shinar. And this person is contrasted with a weak and a feeble man. The image that came to my mind was the man who was lowered in from the rooftops to see our Lord Jesus. He can't even get off his mat. He's weak and he's feeble, and society takes no notice of him. And Hannah says that in God's mighty plan, there's going to be a reversal of the current state that she has described here. The mighty man's bow will be broken, and he will be brought low. But the weak person, as it, it's almost as if he will take the strength of the mighty man and will bind it onto himself. And the end result of that will be that each person will be in the opposite position of where they started. It's a reversal. The mighty will be brought low, and the low person will be strong. Now, the second reversal is described in terms of hunger, and it's found in verse 5a. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. I'm reminded in verse 5a of, of, of Amos chapter 6, where, where Amos, very well-known words, he's speaking to the wicked of Israel, and he says, Woe to those who are at ease, who sit upon beds of ivory, and who stuff themselves with the best foods. And then he says, Those people shall go into exile. And they will literally have to prostitute themselves out for food. Those in Israel who were once full, mighty, successful, and prosperous will be brought low. And yet in this reversal, the beggar, the person who presumably was, uh, was supposed to be entitled to a portion of the fruits of Israel's labor in the field, who had not been receiving them, this beggar will now be filled to the brim. His, his uh, stomach will be given food by God, and he will become the person who is filled and satisfied and happy. You see the reversals going on here. Now I want to skip the, the next one that talks about the barren woman because that's going to have its own significance that we'll get to a little later on. But then in verses 6 through 8, notice Hannah tells us who will be the, the one who enacts these dramatic reversals. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. 
He makes poor and makes rich. He brings low. He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and to inherit in a seat of honor. See what she's doing. She's saying that God is going to act and he is going to reverse something. Now, if this is all we had, just these verses, we might be tempted to think that Hannah's hope was merely in worldly advancement, that she would and the righteous would, would uh, have money and would have homes and would have food and would be well-esteemed and highly praised of men because she expresses it in those terms. But the broader context of Scripture reveals to us that Hannah is using a particular uh, literary device that, that some theologians have called typological idiom. Now, what's typological idiom? It is where you describe spiritual blessings and spiritual realities using everyday common language. And the best way to, to get at this, because we're all familiar with it, is what Jesus does in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's describing their spiritual blessings that he is bringing into the world. But, but what uh, frame of reference, what words does he use to describe the spiritual blessings that he's bringing? Blessed are who? The Christians? No, he describes them as the poor, the lowly, the meek, and those who mourn. You think of the parable of the wedding feast. After, after the people do not show up for the wedding feast, the master says to go out and find who? The weak, the lame, and the sick. Now, in that parable of the wedding feast, Jesus is describing those who will come into his house and receive the benefits of what? Salvation, justification, sanctification, the promise of the Holy Spirit. But he says to bring in the sick and the lame and those who are crippled. Now, if we take that literally, then most of us are automatically disqualified from the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. So we know that Jesus was using metaphorical or typological language. It's not literal. And so Hannah here is presenting to us the struggle of the righteous and the wicked in this life, but she's doing it in terms of sharp, stark, everyday contrasts that her audience would have been familiar with. Hungry versus full. Poor versus rich. Sick versus healthy. Strong versus weak. So then, if what Hannah is saying is that God is going to enact a dramatic reversal of world affairs, but that the substance of the reversal is not going to be merely in earthly possessions, that, that the earthly state alone is going to be reversed, then what is the substance of the exaltation that she's looking forward to? What is she really getting at here? Well, to answer, let's ask this question. When will this reversal occur? Does she say anything to indicate that she has an understanding of when this reversal will occur? Well, yes. In fact, she has pretty stunning insights. There are two places in this prayer where she locates the time frame of this action on God's part. And the place that she puts it is none other than that ominous Old Testament day of the Lord. Notice her first warning again in verse 3, jumping back to verse 3 at the end, the part we haven't read yet. She says to the wicked, after warning them, that the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Weighed. What's that bring to mind? Scales. The scales of God's judgment. God's going to bring people into judgment, and he is going to determine whether or not their actions are in line with righteousness or in line with wickedness. She's bringing judgment into view. And then in verse 10, after explicitly mentioning God's enemies or God's adversaries, she says that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So when does the being broken of the adversaries occur? When God judges all the earth. It's the same language that's used of the day of the Lord. 
The day when God will bring all the nations into that great valley and enter into judgment with them. That's what she's got in mind here. The day of judgment. The day of the Lord. Now if we want confirmation of that, we can flip again. You can actually turn there this time to Psalm 75. I love this psalm. We've, we've looked at a couple of parts of it. I'm going to read verses 2, 7, 8, and 10. Remember, we're trying to see when, when is this, this judgment going to occur and how does that relate to the concept of a horn. Listen to what God says in verse 2. At the time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. So God's talking about the judgment day. There's a time that God has appointed where he's going to judge. And then in verse 7, it says, But it's God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Does that sound familiar? For the hand, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to his dregs. Remember, it's establishing that God is going to enter into judgment. And how does God describe the day of judgment in verse 10? All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. There is coming a day... When all mankind will stand with their horns exposed before God, their being, their essence. And those who exalted themselves, who exalted their own horn against God, will be cut off. And those whose horns were laid low will be exalted in righteousness. The psalmist is picturing that same dramatic reversal that Hannah did. Doesn't it sound awfully familiar to Hannah's prayer? Well, it should. Because this psalm was written by a close companion of Hannah's great-grandson. You remember that David had three main uh, psalm writers that he instituted, Asaph, Heman the Ezrite, and Ethan the Ezrite. This psalm was written by Asaph, who worked closely with the other two. But Heman the Ezrite, we are told in 1 Chronicles 6, was the grandson of Samuel, great-grandson of Hannah. So what do we have here? Hannah's prayer has actually been passed down, and it becomes the basis through which the psalms that the entire nation would sing are now being cast and written. Her hope becomes the hope of the nation. And Asaph writes about it right here. Now, there is one final step in our exegetical exploration of what it means for someone to exalt a horn or for the horn to be exalted. So far we have seen that it is a reversal of the circumstances of the righteous and the wicked and a vindication of the righteous. And that the righteous will be weighed in the balance and shown to be in the right. And that it will take place on the day of judgment. That's what we've seen thus far. But it's not going to merely be a verbal vindication. It's not that we'll get to the day of judgment and God will merely say just of the righteous. He will. He will say that. But it's more than that. There is an additional component to it. A physical and a spiritual one. If the horn of the righteous is their being then the exaltation of that horn doesn't stop at God saying something about them, a.k.a. they are just. The entire body, soul, and spirit of a person is exalted into a higher state of being. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed. We will all be changed. There will be a change that takes place in our being. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When, Paul, when will this happen? At the last trumpet. At the day of judgment, our whole essence is involved in being exalted to a higher condition. That was Paul's theology. 
So if the exaltation of the horn looks forward to the final separation of the wicked and the righteous, enacted by a change in their being, then this is what we are saying, that the exaltation of the horn is simply an Old Testament way of referring to what the New Testament calls glorification. It's one and the same. And so I am asserting to you this morning that Hannah looked at what God had done for her in her life with eyes of faith and viewed her vindication over Penina as a foreshadowing of the day of the Lord when she would join with all the saints in having her being made like unto God in the glorification of her person. Now that's quite remarkable because all God has done is let her conceive. She's just conceived. Women conceive all the time. And yet simply based on the fact that God gave her conception, so focused was she on the promises of God that she was able to view that within the broader context of God's redemptive work and her eyes were turned to the day of her glorification and the exaltation of all of the righteous. Now would you have seen all of that? Because she did. And we're not even done yet. Now, it would be amazing enough that all that she had been able to see was the glorification of the righteous, the fact that it would take place. But now we ask another question of her. We'll see if she can stand up to one more aspect of scrutiny. Did she see how this would take place? It's one thing to see that it would. It's another thing to be able to tell us how. How is it that God will exalt the horn of the righteous? Is there anything in her prayer that indicates that she knew how God would bring this about? Now, at this point, you might be thinking that I'm about to jump down to verse 10 when it talks about the horn of his anointed, because you're good New Testament Christians. You know that anointed in the Old Testament means Messiah. Messiah equals Christ, and so I know where this is going. But there's something else that you might not have noticed that actually comes before verse 10 that will be helpful for us. Remember, when we were going through those dramatic reversals. We skipped that one section about the barren woman. Let me read it to you now. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. They say, I don't see anything about Christ in there. Well, my assertion to you is this, that this verse is a specific prophecy of the end of national Israel and the coming of the Messiah, whose work would result in the exaltation of the horn of the righteous. Right here, she prophesies Christ as the coming means of the exaltation of God's saints. Now, I wish I had more time to develop this, but I'm going to have to fly through this quickly, so prepare to, to think on, your, on the fly. Recall for a moment Genesis 9. In Genesis chapter 9, Noah has built himself a vineyard, and he's gotten drunk, and he's lying in his tent. And then his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, encounter him in different orders. Ham first comes into the tent, and he doesn't cover his father's nakedness. And then he comes out, and he tells Shem and Japheth about that, and then they go in, and they do cover his father's nakedness. And in response to this, Noah gives an oracle in which he announces blessings upon Shem, that the covenantal blessings of God, the the, uh, presence of God, would remain with the line of Shem. And that, on the contrast, Ham's descendant Canaan, the descendants of Ham, would be cursed. But also, he announces that a time is coming when the tents of Shem, the one who received the blessing, will expand and allow the third brother and his descendants, Japheth, to come in. So implicit in that prophecy of Noah is that there will be a time where a segment of humanity is going to be cut off from the promises and the covenants, as the Apostle Paul later tells us, but that one day the Japhethites will be brought back in. 
Now, Isaiah does something rather remarkable with this, and you can turn quickly to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54 follows what? Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is about the suffering servant, the prophecy of Christ and his crucifixion, the means by which God's atonement will be made. And right after Isaiah has just laid out the sufferings of Christ in chapter 53, in chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 2 of the next chapter, chapter 54, notice the language that he uses. See if it doesn't sound familiar. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. In other words, Isaiah is picking up on Noah's language of the tent and saying that the means by which the Japhethites will one day come into the enlarged tent of Shem is the Isaiah 53 servant that we just saw. That's how Noah's prophecy is going to be fulfilled, through the Messiah. But that was verse 2. How did he introduce this whole thing back in verse 1 of chapter 54? Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than of her who is married, says the Lord. Do you hear an echo of Hannah's prayer there? The, the, the barren one will bear, and the one who had many children will be forlorn. So Isaiah is saying, he is specifically taking Hannah's language and connecting it to a prophecy of the Messiah, that the tents of Shem will enlarge, and that the Gentiles will eventually be brought in into the covenant blessings of God. So given that that's the case, that that's what Isaiah does with this language, we have to conclude that Hannah looked with eyes of faith, and when she uses that language of the barren one bearing, and she who has many children being forlorn, that she is focused upon the Messiah. And Paul confirms that for us, as Tracy's going to tell us tonight in Galatians chapter 4. Because he quotes that exact verse about the barren one and says the fact that Messiah has come is the fulfillment of the barren one bearing many. This is what Hannah saw. So now it is our task to turn our eyes where Hannah's eyes were fixed, and that is to our Savior. And we will ask, how is the Lord Jesus the fulfillment of Hannah's prayer of exaltation? Well, first let's note this. That from the earliest things that are spoken of Christ by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, Christ is explicitly presented to us as having to come to fulfill the substance of Hannah's prayer. Consider the birth narratives in the Gospel of Luke. An angel comes to Mary, and she announces that despite Mary having had no sexual relations with a man, she is going to conceive and bear a son. And in response to that word from the angel, she breaks forth into a song. It's called the Magnificat. And the song is little more than a rephrasing and a repackaging of Hannah's prayer. Listen to some of the language that she uses here. First, recall for a second. How does Hannah start her prayer? My heart exalts in the Lord. Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She goes on to say, God has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Holy is his name. Something that Hannah said of God in verse 3. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought the mighty down from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, where did Mary grow up? As a Jew, she's heard Hannah's prayer over and over. 
And the fact that she takes Hannah's prayer and basically repackages it in her own words lets us know that she views the announcement of this child she's about to conceive as the fulfillment of what? Of Hannah's prayer. So she casts her prayer in those same terms. And we get further confirmation of this in the birth narratives of Luke. Because uh, Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, as he's prophesying at the birth of his son, we're told that the Holy Spirit came upon him. And even though he's supposed to be prophesying about the birth of his son, he spends most of the prayer talking about another baby. He says, God has raised up for us a horn of salvation. And so both Hannah and Zechariah recognize that Christ, the baby that's being given, is God's means to man whereby his people will be exalted on the final day. So right from the beginning of Christ's life, we are told that Christ has come to exalt the horn of the righteous. But how does Christ actually accomplish this? Well, here we must remember a problem. And again, Zechariah reminds us explicitly of this problem because in his prayer he mentions the fact that the people have sins that need atoning for. The people have sins. And he says in his prayer explicitly that, that, that the son who is being given to Mary is coming to give knowledge to the people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so we're reminded of this age-old quandary, how can a mortal man atone for his sins? How can he do it? Because before any man can be made righteous, and hence have his horn exalted, his sin must be dealt with first. That's the fundamental problem of Scripture. And no man is sufficient for this, because no mortal man can stare down God's wrath and have any hope of coming out on the other side. So how do we fix this? Well, Hannah and Zechariah both hint directly at it. Because one of the things we've said is that all the sons of Adam have a horn. Both the wicked and the righteous are described as having horns. But there's another person mentioned who is also described as having a horn. In verse 10 of Hannah's prayer, she says, God will exalt the horn of who? The righteous? The wicked? No. His anointed. His Christ. His Messiah. Now follow me here. If God's anointed is to have a horn, that implies what about God's anointed? That he is going to be given a human nature. That he's going to be made a man. That's the first step in solving the problem of the people's sins. He must be given a human nature. The Christ, the anointed, the Messiah, must be made a man. And Mary and Zechariah both recognize that in the coming of this baby, the fact that God has sent us a man, the horn of salvation is here. And so the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, and he creates in her an unfallen human nature, a divine and a human nature brought together in one person. And the book of Hebrews in chapter 2 uses that same psalm that we already looked at, Psalm 8, in talking about the creation of man. We applied it to mankind in general in establishing the Imago Dei. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that that psalm is ultimately about Christ. He says, of the Son, you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory, honor, majesty, and given him dominion over the work of your hands. In other words, the author to the Hebrews is telling us God gave Christ a horn. He endowed him with a horn. He gave him a human nature. Now, in order for the horn of this Messiah to be exalted, it must first be brought low. It cannot be exalted 
unless it is first brought low. And our Lord Jesus was brought low in two ways. First, he was brought low in the eyes of men. As he took on flesh and as he presented himself in his ministry to the people, as he walked this earth, he received the treatment of a righteous man who dwells in the city of Babylon. And one thing that is certain about the citizens of Babel is that they recognize those who are not like him. And as Christ goes about this life, if there's one thing that's clear from the Gospels, it's that people recognize this guy is not like us. He's not like me. Think of all the different ways that they express this. This is just a very small sampling. When he speaks, they are astounded by his wisdom. They say, we've never heard anything like this before. I've never heard someone speak in such a way. They marvel at displays of his power. They are confounded by his ways as he eats and drinks with those whom they despise. We would never do that, and yet this man does it. Even Peter, one of his own disciples, when he sees that Christ has filled the net with fish, is so overcome in the otherness of this one, he falls to his knees and says, Get away from me, Lord, for, for I am a sinful man. He recognizes in his mind, he thinks, If there's one thing I need right now, it's for this man who is so different to simply be away from me because I'm not worthy. And so most fundamentally, Christ was different in his holiness. Even though men may have marveled at his wisdom and, and looked at his power, fundamentally they hated him despite all these signs and wonders. They refused to repent, as Matthew 11 tells us, in his presence. He called them to repentance and they would not do it. They conspired to destroy him. They accused him of blasphemy. They picked up stones to stone him. They said he was satanic. They kicked him from his own hometown. Then they lied about him. They beat him. They spit upon him. They whipped him. And then they nailed him to a cross. The men of this world used every means that they had at their disposal to make it abundantly clear that this one is not like us and we hate him for it. And so Christ was brought low like unto his brothers in that he was despised when he set foot within the city of man. Men lifted their horns against God's chosen horn of salvation. That's the first way he was brought low, but he was brought even lower than that. You know, in the Old Testament, Shell is described as the land of the dead. And very often when the biblical writers speak of it, they speak of it as something that you go down into. It's down, it's somewhere below you. It's a lowly place. And ultimately, it is a place that represents separation from God. And to be separated from God is to be, of course, under God's wrath. And so as Christ is on the cross, the whole essence and being of his person, his very horn, is plunged into the waters of God's infinite wrath. We say it pleased the Lord to crush him. But it pleased the Lord to crush his whole person, every aspect of his being. He was plunged to a depth so low that no man who descends to those depths has any chance of being recovered. No one who ever stands down God's wrath has any reason to believe that they will ever see the light of day again, that they will ever be brought up to see the sunshine. It's the lowest possible place that you can be. There is no lower point than to be under God's everlasting wrath. And that's where Christ was put. And yet it is at this moment and from those unfathomable depths that Christ's horn, his very person, distinguishes itself from the horn of every other man. For whereas the horns and the persons of the sons of Adam 
will be totally consumed by the flames of God's wrath, never able to retard them in the least. Those same flames engulfed the entirety of the person of our Lord. And as they did, they encountered something in his person so unique and so satisfying that they were licked dry and God said, that's all I require. That's sufficient. I am satisfied with this. And because God was satisfied, and because Christ had stood down the bar of God's judgment and been vindicated, then God could not in his justice any longer abandon Christ to those miry depths to which he had been plunged. And so we are told that the power of God, the Holy Spirit himself, brought forth Christ from the pits. As Paul tells us, who shall descend to bring Christ up from the dead? There is only one power on heaven and on earth sufficient for that. It's the Spirit of God Himself. But the Spirit didn't stop there. He didn't merely bring Christ up from the depths. The Spirit of God then took the horn of Christ, His entire person, and bestowed upon it a glorified, higher mode of existence. And He brought Him to sit at the right hand of God. As Jesus said, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Glorify me, Father. It was his hope as he went into God's wrath that he would come out the other side and that his experience would be the exaltation of his own person. No man has ever gone as low as Christ went. And yet no man has ever ascended to the heights of the heavenly throne either. He is put there now to have all rule and authority and power under his feet. He has put the powers of this world to open shame and exposed them for what they are, a man glorified in body and spirit. That's what it means for God to exalt the horn of his anointed. He glorified him and he set him before the world for them all to see. So then... There is just one final piece to Hannah's prayer that we have not established yet. Because Hannah has hope that two horns will be exalted. One, God's anointed, as we just said. And secondly, as we mentioned earlier, the horn of the righteous. So how does Christ's horn being exalted lead to the exaltation of the horn of the righteous? Well, the answer is found in one other Old Testament picture of a horn that we have not yet mentioned. And it is the horn as the instrument of anointing. You know that many times throughout the Old Testament, the prophets would take a horn, and they would fill that horn to the brim with oil. And then they would take that horn, and they would pour it on the head of the person who was being anointed. And over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well, we are told that oil is representative of what? The Holy Spirit. You think of Zechariah's prophecy of the, of the tree and the lampstand, the oil which flows through to the church, which is the Holy Spirit, the oil. And it's put pretty explicitly beyond any doubt in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 13. In describing Samuel's anointing of King David, it says he poured out the oil on his head, and from that moment the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. When the oil comes, so does the Spirit. It's a, it's a representational thing. And so that horn that is itself filled with oil becomes the instrument through which that same oil spirit 
is imparted to others. And so after Christ ascends and after he's glorified, Peter steps onto the scene at Pentecost. And he preaches to the men. And they've seen what's just happened. The Holy Spirit has come out and his, his magnificent power is on display. And the men are looking around puzzled and thinking these, these people are drunk because the Spirit of God has just been poured out. But Peter preaches a sermon and he explains, no, these men are not drunk. For the horn of salvation himself has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And having received the promise of the Holy Spirit, Christ the horn, who has been filled with the Spirit himself, has now poured out that which you are seeing here. Christ was filled with the Spirit, he the horn, and then he becomes the means of imparting that self-same Spirit, pouring it out upon his people. He receives and he imparts the Spirit. And Paul tells us that the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead, what's his function? He will give life to your mortal bodies. And that's not just talking about putting physical life back into your body after you experience physical death. Because those who are alive at Christ's coming will also receive this kind of life. Paul is speaking there of a higher life, a glorified life, one that is bestowed only and fully in God's spirit. And so when Christ on that final day pours out the Spirit upon us with that, that final breath of God, He will seal us forever in righteousness, knowledge, and true holiness. And our entire essence, our entire being, every aspect of who we are, body, soul, and spirit, will be brought to the highest possible condition in which a man can even exist. And then what is written shall be fulfilled. We shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him. So then how is the horn of the righteous exalted? Because God has first exalted the horn of Christ, and he's given him the spirit. And the glorified Christ now possesses that spirit, and therefore he is able to give glorified life to whomever he wills. Is that not amazing? We had a, a lowly woman, not esteemed in the eyes of the world, dwelling in the back hills of Ephraim, and yet when born again of the Spirit of God and when given eyes of faith to see, she can see all of that. That's the substance of Hannah's prayer. That's what she looked forward to. God glorifying the Messiah and in so doing, making provision for her own glorification. Did the Old Testament saints see Christ? You better believe they did. They saw him. They looked for him. Our time is almost up. The application this week was already going to be much shorter than it was last time, so I have just two very brief points of application. First, to the wicked, you must understand something. Though our emphasis this morning has been upon the exaltation of the righteous, implicit in this whole discussion has been another reality that's just been floating under the current and I've mentioned a few times, and that's this. God will cut off the horn of the wicked. Your whole essence, your being, every faculty of who you are will stand before God and when weighed in the balance and found to be outside of God's anointed, you will be plunged into the depths of his wrath. 
And I'm not going to elaborate much further because you got the full blunt of what the terrors of that should look like last week very eloquently. And so if you continue to take all of the faculties that God has endowed you with, all of your capacities as a human being, and use them to rebel against him, if you continue to exalt your horn against the God of the Bible, God will crush your horn and it will never cease. And so you need to take inventory. You need to examine yourself. You need to see whether you have any hope of standing before this God and not having the, the, the hammer stroke of God's wrath brought down upon you. Because there is another whose very horn was exalted for the purpose that sinners like you could be reconciled back to God. Yeah, praise there is hope. Mm -hmm. But if you'll not repent, then as Psalm 2 says, if you won't kiss the sun... His wrath is easily kindled. You will perish in the way to the righteous. Though you're not Hannah, though you don't live when she lived, though you don't come and bring an animal sacrifice, the substance of your faith ought to be no different than the substance of her faith. Her eyes were fixed upon God's Christ. She endured many things in this life. She waited patiently upon the Lord, and she never gave up her hope in Him. And she interpreted everything that happened to her in the broader context of God's plan to exalt the Messiah. And so every aspect of your life, from the most mundane things that you do on a daily basis all the way to the, the high milestones that men look to throughout life, every aspect of your life ought to be interpreted in light of that great day. The fact that you will spend somewhere for eternity. The fact that God is doing something larger than you. Your horizons ought to expand a little bit. And you ought to do your duty with joy and, as we heard this morning, thanksgiving. Because every thought is to be taken captive to the Lord. The day is coming, righteous ones, when God will exalt your horn. The day is coming. But until that day... We look with eyes of faith. That's our task now. And so may God give us eyes to see as clearly and as forcefully as Hannah did. Let's pray.